Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. And this week we have something special for you. We are going, we have a full moon show. Yes, we have a bunch of stories all about the moon. Because why? Because it is 50 years since uh, the first people landed on the moon. That we know of. Well, yeah, the first ones that we have any record of landing on exactly. the moon. Exactly. Yeah. It seems unlikely that there were previous people or humans yeah, at I least. Don't, I don't think that Jules Verne book was a... Was a genuine account, genuine documentary. It's very matrixy, you know. Like everything's just gone; it's all started again. <laughs> You've been to the moon six times, but in the Matrix, like, not oh, personally. It no all resets, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, fine. Yeah. Anyway, um, my name is Chris, and I am talking about uh, the Apollo Eleven moon landing, which is the fiftieth anniversary. Um, it's a big topic, so I'm going to focus on some of the science of it. So, the science of how you get to the moon, and also what the scientific discoveries as a result of said moon landing. So, yeah, putting a sciencey spin on that. Well, I guess I'm talking about an anniversary as well, which you probably don't know about, but it is coming up this year, a little bit later than the anniversary of the Americans landing on the moon, is the anniversary of the first thing from Earth landing on the moon. And that was the Russians shot some stuff up there back in the 50s. What, What anniversary would that be, Stuart? Uh, that would be the anniversary of them firing something. But up. like, what what number? What number? Uh, sixty. Sixty. There you yeah, go. Yeah, it's the sixtieth anniversary coming up in September. So it's a little bit, little couple of months off. Yeah, ten years earlier. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They well, you can. That's kind of why people got scared that well, I don't know why it mattered that they were going to get there first, but that was a big deal at the time. Okay. Well, thank you, Stu. And you might have recognised another voice there. We are joined once again by Jacinta, who has another moon story for us. What are you talking about yeah, for us I'm, today, Jacinta? Hi. I'm skipping a little bit further forward to Apollo 14 in 1971 and talking about moon trees and how they exist. They're a thing that you probably haven't heard of, but are really, really cool. Not like moon cows. They jump over the moon and... That kind of stuff. Yeah. I don't think moon cows are actually real, but uh, moon trees are. So we'll get to talk about them in a bit. Mm, can't wait for that one. Well, on with uh, the loony show. <laughs> yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and 50 years ago... Uh, on the 21st of July, 1969, one of the most famous events in human history took place when Neil Armstrong and Edwin Buzz Aldrin became the first humans to walk on the moon. Ooh. Yes. Now, it is a big event, obviously, and there's so much to say about it, so much being said about it. I'm sure you're probably all sick of moon stuff, as it is. But I thought I would have a bit of a look about that, some of the science of it, because we are a science show, after all. Uh, and there are two things I want to focus on. This is like, the first of all, a bit of the science of how you get to the moon, and the scientific discoveries from the moon landing. Now, of course, getting to the moon, that's all about the physics. It's all about big rockets, isn't it? Yeah, you just point the rocket at the moon, and there you go. Yeah. 
And we're talking like a very big rocket here. So the, the giant Saturn V rocket was 111 metres tall. Now, I looked up sort of similar heights of buildings uh, around the place. In Melbourne, the Herald and Weekly Times building on South Bank is apparently about 111 metres tall. Uh, in Sydney, you've got the Four Seasons Hotel on George Street, if you're familiar with that. Um, I started looking up other ones in other cities. It got a bit difficult. So I know... Another way to think about it, if you think about like a 100-metre running track, think of that a bit longer and then upright. Stand it up. Yeah. Has it really actually been – I don't think it's been beaten yet. I think this is – that's still one of the biggest rockets they've Quite likely, yeah. Put up. There's, there's, some, there's some that have been designed that were never built, but I don't think anyone's launched a bigger rocket at this point. The US were making sure they had the biggest rocket. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you need a big rocket because you need to obviously go very fast to get to the moon, to get into the appropriate orbit. And to do that, you need, um, yeah, big, powerful engines. And you also need a lot of fuel to take up with you. And there's the fuel is kind of the big the big cost because you have to, all the fuel you intend to burn later on, you also have to lift up into space as well, which is kind of a pain. So yeah, this rocket um, had three stages. The first used something called RP-1, which is kind of kerosene really, uh, and along with liquid oxygen to help it burn, and the second and third stages use liquid hydrogen and oxygen. Now, the way it worked, pretty much, uh, I don't know if you watch a lot of science fiction movies, the spaceships always have their engines burning the whole time, they're going, mm. they go past you. Um, rockets in real life tend not to work like that. You kind of fire them really strongly, get up to speed, and then kind of coast in an orbit is the way it tends to go. Yeah, once you're in space, you'll just keep traveling the same direction at the same speed, right? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Well, you'll be in an orbit, which is yeah. what you want to do. Um, but yeah, it takes a long, takes a bit of a lot of fuel to get up to that speed. Um, if you want to go like really fast, you'd need to burn a lot longer. But this is you know enough to get to the moon. So the the um, rocket engines only burnt for about seventeen minutes all up. But by the time the third stage had finished, the Apollo spacecraft was moving at about thirty seven thousand four hundred kilometers per hour relative to Earth, which is pretty fast. That's and it's pretty fast. It's a bit less than the escape velocity for Earth, um, which is about 40,000 kilometres per hour, but it was basically enough to put into what they call a translunar injection, which is kind of an elongated orbit that takes it just past the moon. So then, of course, once you get the influence of the moon's gravity, you've got to slow down enough to go into a lunar orbit, and then they send the landing module down to the surface um, to try and land as gently as possible. <laughs> Which, which is not a lot easier than landing on Earth because the moon's gravity is a lot less, of course. At the surface, about a sixth of the gravity we get on Earth. And also they're able to take off and land in the lunar module because they didn't have to carry all that fuel again. Like So to get back to Earth, they had the, um, the other command module, which was orbiting the moon, and that had the big engine that would take them back to Earth, whereas um, the, the lunar lander just had to get back up into orbit. So they didn't have to carry all that fuel. It was, it was pretty lightweight. It was pretty lightweight. So, yeah, they did not have the, the rockets on the whole time. They basically just coasted for about two and a half days. Now, the actual time they spent walking on the moon was pretty brief. So, um, look, they were on the moon overall for about t- over 21 hours, but they're only outside for about two and a quarter hours. Um, you know, there was a lot of concerns about the safety of being on the moon. Plus, there's a lot of stuff they needed to do as well to make sure everything was safe to take off and land, and this kind of stuff, get the correct orbit, that sort of thing. Um, they and look, the point of the whole thing was not really, it was a political mission. You know, it was just basically, it was an exercise to get to the moon, to be the first on the moon, to plant the flag, which then they blew over when they took off. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was the point of it was a political mission. And they didn't have time to do a lot of scientific experiments, but they did do a few scientific experiments, uh, even if 
again, a lot of it was kind of symbolic. They brought a lot of samples back. They brought about um, 21 kilos of lunar material back to Earth. But some of those, like President Richard Nixon gave away a lot of those samples as presents to people. So, you know. He wasn't all that interested in the science. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but look, we did learn some things from these, these samples. And the moon rocks did tell us some things. Uh, we learned a lot about the, the composition of the surface of the moon from this. Obviously, we'll learn a lot more from later missions as well. Um, but, you know, found out that the rocks are generally very old. There's not a lot of active geology going on on the moon, as you'd imagine. Um, and, but also they found out that the composition of the moon is very similar to that of the Earth, which gives support for the, um, what you might have heard of, the giant impact hypothesis. And this is the idea that when the Earth was very young, something big hit it and knocked a chunk away that then became the moon. Yeah. Yeah. So that was one of the useful things that kind of we, we managed to get support from, from these, um, these lunar samples. Uh, now, is this useful to any of us? Well, I mean, it's good to know this stuff, obviously. Um, if ever someone wants to mine the moon, with a lot of talks about now about people going to the moon to mine for minerals, um, then obviously knowing what it's made out of will be useful. But then the whole kind of idea of having someone land on the moon in the first place is also a precursor to mining the moon. There's a lot going on there. I don't want to encourage moon mining anyway. Imagine looking up and seeing a mine in the sky. No, thank you. You yeah. just do it on the far side so you wouldn't have to see it. You could do that, yeah. Um, another experiment they did, there is the laser ranging experiment, which is basically they just left a mirror on the moon. This is like one of the cheaper experiments. It's also one of the longest running experiments uh, because it was just a mirror that they left behind. And it allowed some very accurate measurements um, of gravity, how gravity changes over time or does not change over time. Um, allowed you them to measure the distance of the Earth from the Moon. They found that it's moving away from us at the rate of 3.8 centimetres per year, which again further supports this impact theory because it says that the Moon was once a lot closer to the Earth than it is now, a long mm. time ago. Mm. I mean, think about it. If you play the, play the tape backwards. <laughs> um, thanks to advanced technology, this, um, the measurements of the Moon's distance have been getting more and more accurate. It's now getting down to the millimetre range, which involves figuring out all kinds of stuff about... I know the the positions of the sun and the other planets and um, even the internal composition of the Earth and the moon and some of these other objects as well. You need to work out where all the mass is to be able to calculate all the effects of gravity that's um, affecting the the variation of the moon in its orbit. So, yeah, a lot of very um, complicated and accurate models have been required for that. However, the best finding that I could find was um, due to another experiment where they left a seismograph on the moon to measure moonquakes. Uh, Moonquakes are just like earthquakes but on the moon anyway this was in an article from the journal science it was published nearly a year after the moon landing so what they did they measured the speed of um vibrations of sound waves effectively through the um through lunar rocks and they found that it moves at about one third the speed that it does to earth rocks which um you know which was kind of a you know unexpected finding but they went looking for similar materials that would have the same kind of speed of of sound in them mm. and what they found that there you could get a similar kind of speed of waves in certain kinds of cheese so the moon is made of cheese well they concluded that it's you know it's it's not exactly the same kind of cheese cuz the the rocks are a bit older on there but yeah certainly there are some similarities and they said you shouldn't discard old hypotheses unnecessarily I'm Maggie Darren Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science. Okay, so the US mission to land people safely on the moon and return them to Earth was an impressive feat of science and technology, and it's rightly celebrated as one of the defining moments of the 20th century. 
Uh, and it's it's probably almost understandable that some people who didn't live through the era have doubts about this actually happening because it really is quite extraordinary to land people on the moon and bring them back to Earth multiple times, which they did. Uh, but I think at the same time, it's important to look at the historical context of when they were doing this. So uh, this was the culmination of a space race. It was a literal race between the US and the Soviet governments that went for over a decade to see who could do the most amazing space stuff. When you say um, a literal race, yeah, they were competing to be the first. They weren't actually literally racing in space. They were in space a lot of the time at okay. the same time. So, yeah, okay. you know, um, they're, they're, you could see it as a race to, to see who could do it first. They didn't necessarily go by the same route, but they definitely had the yeah. same objectives. Um, so certainly the Americans did land on the moon first, but for much of the late 50s and into the 60s, Soviet launches were leading the way into space in many ways. Obviously, their Sputnik was the first uh, artificial satellite. They got the first man in space. They got the first woman in space. They got the first dog in space. Um, and almost 10 years before Neil Armstrong, uh, they landed a probe on the moon in 1959. In September 1959, as well as a bunch of other stuff before uh, the Americans got to the moon. So the Russian Lunar 2 was the first object from Earth to land on the moon ever in the history of the world that we know of. Yep. Um, and sure, it wasn't a soft landing. It got completely destroyed by oh. doing that, but oh. it it got there. It That's tried. the important thing. Was um, it completely destroyed? Like, did it send back any signals at all? Or? I think it sent back signals as it was approaching the moon, but I don't think it survived the uh, the landing. Um, so that was in September 1959. A month later, another mission sent back first pictures of the moon's far side, which we'd never seen before because we'd never been on that side of the moon before. So the Soviets have that under their belt. Uh, Lunar 9 sent back images from the moon, the first images from the moon in 1966. And in 1968, uh, Soviet-launched turtles and other organisms became the first orbiters of the moon to return to Earth. Turtles? Turtles. They Why? Sent, they sent two turtles to see what would happen to them. Why not dogs or cats, just turtles? Probably because turtles were tough and nobody really cared about the turtles. <laughs> did, when they came back, did they name them after Renaissance artists and send them to live in the sewers? Unfortunately not, but they chopped them up to see what had happened to their oh. bodies. Um, they, they did uh, autopsies on them. Well, they killed them and then did autopsies on them. Um, what they found was that they had lost a lot of weight because they didn't put any food in there for them to eat oh while they were on their trip. Um and much like Elon Musk's space car, they strapped a dummy into the pilot seat of the Zond 5 craft, which had the turtles in it, which was to measure radiation levels. So initially, the Zond mission was intended to carry cosmonauts, but they'd had two previous failures, quite dramatic failures, of their launch systems, and they decided maybe we'll just send turtles. Uh, and they sent turtles and fruit fry, fruit fly larvae to see what the effect of cosmic radiation would be on the on the organisms um but this trip was enough for a british astronomer called lowell uh to declare that cosmonauts could be orbiting the moon within months of the zond 5 mission um then the americans looked at their data and said no 
you got a whole lot of things wrong. They uh, went way further away from the moon than they said they were going to go, so they they could track the orbit, and they went, well, you kind of missed the moon, and then you missed your landing point as well. So their, their Zond 5 ended up in the Indian Ocean when it was actually oh, supposed right. to land in Russia uh, or in the Soviet Union. So the Americans were not as impressed as the British astronomer yeah. was. It's still kind of an interesting achievement. When you look at the... Um Look at the stuff with the the Apollo landing. A lot has been said lately about around the uh, the computers that they had with them. Like they're obviously fairly primitive by our standards, computers. But the, you know the the early computer programming, particularly the achievements of some of the the women who programmed these computers. Um, there's obviously the movie Hidden Figures, this kind of thing. Um, when you look at those uh, Soviet missions, they're basically all automated, aren't they? Well, they're, they're all mechanical. Control. Yeah, yeah, they're all very much mechanical. There's not any electronics, so to speak, in, in these, um, in these craft. Um, so by December 1968, Americans had orbited the moon and the Russians kind of gave up on the idea of beating them with people to land on the moon. By that point, it's a bit late to be starting a, a manned. Yeah. Well, they, they sort of had, but they had also been working on other uh, plans. So they were going to try and collect soil samples from the moon and get them back to Earth at the same time as Apollo 11 returned uh, from its uh, landing on the moon. Um, but their Lunar 15 craft crashed into a mountain on the moon and didn't return to Earth at all. So they pretty much lost the spotlight at that point. It was supposed to come back a day after the astronauts landed from the Apollo 11. Um, but they didn't stop trying, and in November 1970, they managed to land a remote-controlled skid-steer lunar rover on the moon and drive it around the moon. And it actually held the record for, or not this one, but the one that followed it, held the record for the longest distance travelled off Earth by right, a vehicle. Okay. Um, they called it the Lunacod, which is Russian for moonwalker, uh, and they drove it around. Uh, they also sent another Lunacod 2 up in 1973 that was collect samples for return to Earth. Um, they accidentally drove into a crater and filled up the top of it with dirt, uh, which blocked its solar panels, Aww. which meant it died on the moon and overheated because then it had dirt in its radiator that kept it warm at night. Um, so they cancelled their Lunacod 3, which would have been their third rover. But the designers of the first interplanetary remote rovers were not quite finished. In 1986... Those designers were called to help with the Chernobyl meltdown oh. because the systems they built for their Lunacod rovers were uh, were able to withstand high levels of radiation because they had a radioactive heating system on board. So they actually helped with the cleanup at Chernobyl, uh, even though they'd retired their their lunar program quite some time before that. So I just wanted to bring up that I think it's that pressure. You can really see that the the Soviets were trying to get to the moon and that really adds to the narrative that it wasn't just we're doing it because we can. We're doing it. They were doing it because they had to beat these other people to the moon. Um, they probably wouldn't have progressed as quickly without that competitive yep. edge. Uh, and it really was a race to get there. It was only months and luck in a lot of ways that, uh, separated the two programs in terms of scientific advances and capabilities. But it does make you wonder how much they might have been able to achieve if they'd cooperated with each other instead of 
competing with each other. True, but then you look at the fact that uh, no one's been back to the moon since um, the the Apollo program ended, mm. and that the the driver was this competition, and without that competition, once that's gone, then no one's interested. Yeah, yeah budget cuts, I reckon, probably would have uh, oh, on both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Down. Yeah. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. The Apollo missions have had some fantastic legacies which have been forgotten through time. There was was a lot going on in those couple of years where um, America was sending people to space. Um, For example, on July 31st, 1971, Apollo 14 lifted off with Commander Alan Shepard, Commander Module Pilot Stuart Rusa and Lunar Module Pilot Edgar Michel. Now, most people know that mission from the golfing that Alan Shepard undertook whilst on the moon. Some people know that he brought two golf balls with him and then decided to do some golfing on the moon. World's largest sand trap, except not the world's largest sand trap. Yeah, the moon's <laughs> largest sand trap. <laughs> I correct myself yeah. there, yeah. yeah. The solar system's largest sand Maybe? trap? Yeah. Hmm. Um, but uh, less people know that in the back, the back in the command module, Rusa had 500 seeds in his bag. The coolest thing about this is that some of those original seeds were planted and still live on today. Were they planted on the moon or they planted no. back on it? So they never actually made it to the moon. Ah, okay. Um, but they did do 34 laps. So they did more moon seeing than the rest of us probably ever will. Um, they may well be the most well-travelled seeds. <laughs> I think they are the most well-travelled yeah. seeds. Um, back in 1970, the chief of the U.S. Forest Service contacted Rusa to propose sending tree seeds into space. Long before he became an astronaut, uh, Rusa actually started his military career as a smoke jumper. I didn't know what this was until I had to look it up. It's a specially trained firefighter who parachutes into remote terrains and fights wildland fires. So, With what? Uh, so they they have like water with them, <laughs> right. but they parachute in and like yeah in in particular locations. You it's... think you come down with a bucket of water and you go, throw it <laughs> just okay. one bucket. And now yeah. I'm stuck here with my parachute. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I mean, this is very early. This is in like the 1960s. Okay. So I'm assuming it's like they'll just go in and yeah, any, hope that it. Any smoke jumpers out there? Please um, write in and tell us what you do. Yeah, contact us. Um, and so he wanted to pay tribute, so Rusa wanted to pay tribute to the Forest Service and so agreed to the chief's request. Um, so in his personal travel kit, when the rocket took off, he'd packed 500 seeds from wet redwood, loblolly pine, American sycamore, Douglas fir, and American sweet gum trees. So all of those are American trees, um, but they were all separate, like separately split out so you could tell what they were and they were in his bag. Um, but because he was the command module pilot, like we said before, he never actually made it down to the lunar surface, and so the seeds didn't either. So the command module is the, like we talked about, the bit that, that orbits the moon, the lander goes down, and yes. then comes that rendezvous again. And, yes, yeah, so you need one person sitting in the command module to 
to make sure it doesn't crash or anything. Make like sure it doesn't yeah. float off into space, yeah. I suppose. And to do the rendezvous <laughs> the, the, when they come up. Yeah. yeah, this one was called the Kitty Hawk, I right. believe. Um, so this is Apollo 14, not Apollo 11, which we were talking about before. Yeah. Um, so what they did is once the three astronauts returned to Earth, the seeds inside their canister underwent the normal decontamination process, but the canister ruptured and the seeds were mixed together and absolutely you know, decontaminated, they were a bit worried that they were too damaged to germinate. Um, But the researchers tried anyway and found that most of the seeds did survive and they were planted in a number of locations across the US. Now, I would totally recommend there's a Wikipedia page which shows you all the different locations of the moon trees. Um, Just Google it because they're in some really weird spots and you might find that next time in the US, you might have one not too far away from where where you are. But the big question are the seeds any different to the seeds that stayed home? Yeah, can you see it? Can you spot a moon tree by sight? Is there something strange about it? Like tentacles and that sort yeah, of thing? Yeah, there's definitely ten- no. <laughs> So there's actually nothing different. Um, that you can't tell the difference. 20 years later, um, you can't see any difference at all. Um, at the time, NASA didn't really know what the outcome of sending people to space would be. Um, as we said off air, they actually put astronauts into quarantine for 28 days after they got home just to be safe. Um, the so seeds, a, whole, a whole lunar cycle they had to like wait yeah, out. Yeah, they had to just make sure that the moon had come back around again yeah. before they... Because that's how it works. Yeah. Well, that's how. That's surely werewolves are old astronauts. Yeah, if they caught like the lycanthropy from going to the moon, <laughs> then yeah, that would be coming around another cycle. Yeah, yeah. totally. It makes sense. There's a great picture of um, the three astronauts from the Apollo 11 mission standing in front of like this door, and the president is standing like in, so they're behind the door. The president's standing in front of the door, and he's like, "Yeah, congratulations!" But he can't actually talk to them because they're in quarantine. Right. Um, so the seeds would have been bombarded with a bit of cosmic radiation, um, the same as astronauts do. But seeds are really, really hardy. They can survive 200 times the radiation dose required to kill a human. So a little bit of uh, space radiation probably wasn't going to damage them. And then there's a lack of gravity. But seeds are pretty okay with no gravity. It's really only when they germinate that gravity becomes more of an issue for their growth. So not too different. And in fact, in places where they were planted, you cannot tell the difference between the moon trees and the ones that never left the planet. So they were planted at the same time to see the difference and there was no changes. Um, Fittingly, it's been 50 years since the Apollo mission, as we've talked about. And just a few days ago, NASA unveiled a new moon tree park with 12 second generation moon trees, one for each manned mission, moon mission, to no, manned mission to space. There's not been 12 moon missions, I don't think. 12 missions to space. Yeah, the park also features life-size statues of Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, and Michael Collins. But I think the trees are the cool part. So, yeah. Go go check out the trees. Yeah. And that is it for our special moon-themed episode. I hope you've... um, Give me some moon puns, people. You've looned a lot? you looned a lot, yeah. Yeah. I hope we... um, created a good story for you oh um and i hope you're not rushing to bring out some more of those jokes no no um mate this is this is rapidly waning my enthusiasm for this (laughs) anyway um but don't worry it's just a phase that i'm going through uh, now, anyway, you're lost in science. It is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Uh, we would love you to get in touch with us with your, with your um, 
uh, your information about smoke jumpers and any other moon related uh, experiences you may have had uh, you can email us at lostinsight at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook we are Lost in Science on 3CR we are on Twitter we are at Lost in Science 1 we are also on various podcast apps and this sort of thing if you find us on Apple Podcasts then give us a good rating and review because that will help us look good and then other people will find us as well um, or you can find us on the radio Why Not on the Radio where at the same time every week we will endeavour to get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.